0: Chapter Seventeen of One Commonplace Day by Pansy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Seventeen The Proof of the Divine Hand. The carriage stopped in the narrowest part of the alley before a house that, if anything, was more dreary than the others in the row. That this place was just now a centre of interest of some sort was apparent. Rough looking men and women stood about on the steps and even out into the filthy lane. There was an air of quiet, as though something unusual had stepped in and hushed the common noises of the retreat. A shabbily dressed man was coming out of the door, and the gazers, with one consent, fell back and made a way for him to pass. It was this man, and the burden he carried, which had called forth Miss Wainwright's startled order for he had under his arm a small pine box, unpainted, unadorned in any way, yet unmistakably serving as a last resting-place for some one's dead. There followed him the most haggard-faced woman Miss Wainwright's eyes had ever seen. There were no tears on the face, she looked like one who had shed all her tears years before, and who had now nothing but settled despair with which to meet any calamity." yet she was young, younger by years than Miss Wainwright. Two frightened children stole behind her, and this desolate group was evidently about to make its way to some spot where the coffined child could rest. "'Here,' said Miss Wainwright, leaning from her carriage and speaking in the tone of quiet command, which generally produces obedience, "'bring it here.' And she tossed the cushions right and left, making room for the small coffin.' help the woman in and the children. This was her next order, and she threw open the carriage door. A man whose face she knew stepped suddenly forward to do her bidding. She recognized him by a word of command. John, put the children on this seat with me, and turn that left seat. The mother, meantime, had regarded the newcomer with a half-dazed air, and made no resistance to her orders. She was one to whom it mattered little what came next, and whom nothing would have surprised. John, said Miss Wainwright, where is the minister? There is room for him. The listeners stared. Some of them laughed. They ain't got no minister, said one. John Hartzell was fastening the carriage door and made no reply. Didn't you have a funeral service? said shocked Miss Wainwright, and the man who had clambered in after the coffin answered, we don't know no minister and no minister don't know us we are strangers here nobody's come near us and she said she didn't care now molly was dead there couldn't nothing help her and it didn't make no difference for the first time in her life miss wainwright discovered that there was a form of sorrow more eloquent than tears oh dear just those two words escaped her then she shut her lips A funeral without a minister and a prayer was to her the final drop of human desolation. She had not realized that such things could be in this Christian land. Eastwood was by no means a large city. In fact, it was not a city at all, but a large town, with much more than its share of the very poor, owing, some people said, to their having been drawn thither by the prospect of work on the railroads, and others to the fact that there were large factories where men could find employment, and others knew it was owing to the fact that there were more rum saloons in the town than in any place of its size within a radius of a hundred miles. This is everywhere the story, in brief, of the very poor. It was the story of this family. It was plainly marked on the father's bloated face. "'John,' said Miss Wainwright, take a seat with Peter, will you, and help us through. I am going for my minister to come and have a prayer with us when we get to the grave. Peter, drive to Howard Place, number 36. It was such a short drive from the flats! How strangely life was mixed! He won't come. These were the first words which the mother had spoken. Her voice was the very impersonation of utter quiet despair. She had evidently given up all hope of every kind. The words made Miss Wainwright pray that Dr. Brandon might be at home and able to answer her call. He was a student, and his morning hours were precious, and Miss Wainwright was one of the few who recognized this and rarely intruded. She never remembered having stopped at the parsonage before in the morning. What if he should tell her that it was quite impossible for him to answer to this call from the flats? these people were none of his. Dr. Brandon was a comparatively new man among them. It was altogether an experiment. As if to echo her thoughts, the father said, as the carriage was turning into Howard Place, "'There ain't no account to disturb any minister. We couldn't pay no one, not if our lives depended on it. And she allowed that she didn't care for that, nor nothing else, and we just managed it.' "'Pay?' said Miss Wainwright with energy. If that miserable mother had not been sitting beside him, she would have reminded him then and there, that he had probably given the rum-sellers enough to have furnished a respectable coffin for his baby, and respectable clothing for the living. But she restrained her tongue, and only said, John, ring the bell at number 36, will you? Oh, to be sure of her pastor, he was in his study and the shades were drawn to keep out the outside world the sharp clang of the doorbell reached his thoughts busy though they were with the grand theme the proof of the divine hand as seen in daily providences it was not half an hour since he had said to the little smiling boy who answered his doorbell albert say to whoever calls that i am very busy this morning and cannot be disturbed He heard Albert's quick feet respond as though the bell-wire had been attached to them. In a moment the messenger, unless he were very determined, would be silenced. Yet Dr. Brandon arose, crossed the room, and deliberately drew up his shade to see what was wanted. Miss Wainwright's carriage, and on the front seat a little coffin. Albert's voice had begun his carefully prepared story. Dr. Brandon is very busy this morning, and then the bare-headed minister took it up miss wainwright what is the trouble it needed but a sentence spoken low from miss wainwright before the minister comprehended enough of the situation to make prompt response certainly i will why that is very sad i would have come in a moment of course albert my coat and hat alice and he turned to explain to the lady who had come to the door to speak to miss wainwright and had stopped "'startled at the sight of the little coffin. "'She listened and nodded and said only two words. "'Poor mother!' "'Then she stepped forward and laid a spray of snowdrops, "'which she had just broken from the bush, on that pine-box. "'It was well for that mother that the servant of God, "'who took a seat beside her, "'saw the divine hand in this providence, "'and chose his words with a care worthy of the wise master "'whom he served.' A little coffin, he said in low, sympathetic tones. Another baby rescued from the sin and the sorrow and the danger of this dangerous world. And the mother, whose eyes had been fixed on those snowdrops, suddenly buried her head in the folds of her ragged shawl and sobbed as though her poor heart was breaking. They were the first tears she had shed since the baby sickened. What had she not suffered and sacrificed for that baby? no wonder that she loved it she lived so far away from the sound of heaven that not a thought of the sweet old story of its beauty and its rest and the little children gathered there had come to her since her own childhood when she had known it well the divine hand was with dr brandon the divine voice whispered to him the next words he said were these around the throne of god in heaven thousands of children stand Children whose sins are all forgiven, a holy, happy band. In flowing robes of spotless white, see every one arrayed, dwelling in everlasting light and joys that never fade. Did he know how that mother's sore heart had longed for one little white robe to put on her darling when she dressed it for the last time, and how it had been impossible to her? No, but the Divine One did. The carriage moved slowly now. Peter, with grave face and eyes that were dimmed with tears, held back the high-stepping horses. John Hartzell studied the pine-box with a hand that trembled. These were strange experiences to him. How came he to be standing by that house and inquiring what was the matter, just as Miss Wainwright's carriage appeared?" There had been a funeral of a little baby once which he did not attend, because he was lying in a drunken stupor when the coffin was borne away, and he had stolen the little half-worn shoes of that dead baby, and sold them for the liquor which stupefied him. He did not know whether there had been a minister at that funeral. He was sure there had been no carriage. He could remember a funeral, a baby's, where there had been a white casket and silver adornments and nodding plumes and costly flowers and dirge-like music and many carriages. That was the funeral of his little brother, and he remembered his mother's tears and knew that she had shed bitterer ones for him even before she died than any which fell on that coffin. Better in there, he said, nodding his head toward the pine-box, and speaking in a husky voice to Peter, "'Better in there than to live to be such men as the father and I have made.' Now Peter was the servant of the Lord. He wanted always and everywhere to speak the message that his master would have spoken. What was it now? He was still for a moment, then he said, "'Yes, but better to get ready to go after them, looking so that they will not be ashamed to meet us.' I've got a baby up there, two of them. I don't want them to be ashamed of father when he comes. I don't mean they shall be. Only that, and, like a flash, shone out words in the letter which John Hartzell had received but the night before. John, I heard that you had buried your boy while he was yet a baby. Do you remember that you are to meet the boy again? Do you mean to meet him only to gaze at his glory for a moment, and then leave him for The words had been lost last night in the rush of other and earlier memories, but they came and glowed before him now. Poor John Hartzell! Had the wretch who sold him rum in exchange for the little shoes known how nearly his reason was tottering that morning, known how he dumbly felt that he must have liquor just to drown his consciousness, so that the gnawings of remorse would not drive him wild? he might have felt less virtuous when he told his wife that such a wretch as that ought to die, that he hadn't a spark of humanity left in him, and that the sooner he drank himself to death, the better. Poor John Hartzell! Theoretically, he had known it all his life, for he had been well grounded in his childhood in the facts of Christianity, but it came to him for the first time this morning as a realization that it was possible to see his baby again, and to see him in joy, not in shame and remorse. A faint conception came to him of what it might be to have a Saviour who was able to blot out all bitter memories. It held him dumb, awestricken and almost. And Peter, sitting beside him, prayed the Divine Voice to speak to him, because his own blundering tongue knew not what to say, and did not know that he had said words which would sound sweetly in his ears in the resurrection morning. Charlie Lambert was coming down Vine Street sauntering. Business did not press him that morning. He saw the well-known carriage in the distance. He smiled, as he remembered that he had probably sent its owner on an uncomfortable search after things that would fit. What had she done, he wondered. Something eccentric, of course." he waited for the carriage curious to know it would probably turn down vine street he would like to quiz its owner a little no it did not turn it kept steadily up the avenue toward grove lawn and turned in at those open gates the cemetery the potter's field apparently for the horses turned down that left side and on the front seat was a little pine box this was certainly eccentric enough but there was hardly room for quizzing When the carriage came back to the flats, and stopped once more before the wretched little house, certain changes had taken place. The room had been swept, the table set neatly for dinner, a good fire was burning, and a kettle on the stove was emitting certain savory odors, and Kate Hartzell stood before the table, cutting slices of bread from a good-sized loaf. A middle-aged woman, with her plain, rather coarse gray alpaca dress turned up, and her sleeves rolled above the elbows, was washing a yellow bowl in which she meant to serve whatever the kettle contained. Kate went to the door when the carriage stopped. The question was, would John Hartzell return with them, or would he slip away downtown into temptation and misery? No, he was there, and opened the carriage door with a grave, sober face, for the mother and father, and then for Miss Wainwright herself. "'John,' said Kate Hartzell, I wish you would get me a pail of water. I cannot make the pump work. She said it as quietly as though she had been used to asking him such commonplace assistance as this, and he took the pail and turned away as quietly as though it had not actually been years since he had contributed even so much to the comforts of home. "'You here?' said Miss Wainwright, and she held out her hand in cordial greeting. "'I live almost next door.' said kate but i did not know there was trouble here until i saw them going away this morning what next door i thought you lived then she stopped my father lives three doors from here and my brother john i have come home her lips were trembling a little it was a pitiful home for her to own to miss wainwright looked hard at her i understand she said after a moment with a wise nod of her head YOU HAVE COME FISHING. CLAIM THE PROMISE, CHILD. HE WON'T DENY HIS WORD. WHO IS THIS? SHE WAS LOOKING TOWARD THE WOMAN IN GRAY, WHO WAS BENDING OVER THE SAVORY KETTLE. SHE LIVES NOT FAR AWAY, IS A NEW NEIGHBOR, SHE SAYS, WHO SAW THE COFFIN THIS MORNING AND CAME OVER. SHE HAS BEEN HERE EVER SINCE AT WORK. SHE BROUGHT THINGS FOR THEM TO EAT. SHE SAYS HER NAME IS PRISCILLA HUNTER. I NEVER SAW HER BEFORE. Miss Wainwright's grey eyes had a peculiar look in them. Here was one of her morning errands done for her then. She went into the little box of a bedroom, where mother and children had retreated, then came out again presently, and stopped for a moment at the door, her hand on the father's shoulder, as he stood looking aimlessly down at nothing. "'You have been through scenes this morning which ought to help make a man of you,' she said firmly, you were one once. I can see it in your face even yet. Let the flowers spring up all over that grave for your wife to remember forever. Stay at home this afternoon until you get a message from me if you want a place to work, and I believe in you enough to think that you do. Then she turned to Miss Priscilla Hunter who had turned down her dress and was tying on a rusty black bonnet and drawing grey cotton gloves, several sizes too large for her, over yellowed and bony hands. "'Miss Hunter,' she said, and held out her neatly gloved hand, "'I was in search of you. I heard from a reliable source that I could find a friend and helper in you. Take a seat in my carriage, and let us get acquainted and compare notes.' so the coarse gray dress and the plain handsome black silk dress entered the carriage together and john hartzell closed the door bowing in something like his old fashion to miss wainwright then peter drove carefully and skillfully down the narrow alley End of Chapter 17